Now, I'm excited to be able to uh, continue through our study in the Ten Commandments. We've been in our series in the Ten Commandments now for, this is the ninth week. We've been taking one commandment every single week, and here we are in commandment number nine. Now, one of the things that I did this week was I sent out an email uh, to our database and asked you if you would, uh, if you want to participate in an illustration to get some toothpaste. And so, I don't know if you did, but here's some toothpaste uh, that I got and, uh, you know, just, you know, something that you can grab there as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, you don't need the box. Also, you don't need uh, this little foil thing. So go ahead and pop that off as well. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's what we're going to do. This is going to be a little bit of a competition. You won't be able to see me, I guess, because my uh, table is a little bit low. But here's what we're going to do. Take your toothpaste. And what you're going to do is you're going to try to squeeze all of the toothpaste out as fast as possible. Don't go yet because you're, don't cheat. You, this is a competition. All right. So get, get ready. All right. You get, get ready, set, get ready. Get set. Wait. Hey, wait. I saw you. I, I saw you. You're cheating. <laughs> all right. Ready? Set. Go. Try to squeeze it all out. Get it all out. Go, 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 go. Who can get it out the fastest? Come on. Oh, I'm still going. Oh, no. I, all right. Mine's done. Who won? Who won in your home? Maybe, maybe no one else is with you. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, you're, you're on your own. Did you beat me uh, or did I, did I beat you? All right. So here's my toothpaste. It's all squeezed out and squished out and everything and, and all gone. So yeah, that was, that was fun. We got to make a mess. But hey, all right, so here's phase two. Here's phase two of our, our analogy. Uh, it's this. All right, let's put all the toothpaste back in. Who can do that the fastest? Oh, that's, that's going to be more difficult, isn't it? It's going to be a little bit harder. You might even say, that's impossible. How am I going to be able to do that? And that's exactly the idea of what we're looking at together today in uh, commandment number nine. It's the idea that once words come out, Man, you can't take them back. You can't put them back in. There, there's no amount of, of trying to gather them back up and, and trying to, to fix it all, to, to try to make it all go away. That's going to make that happen. We've got to really uh, be careful about what we say. It's, it's much more difficult to try to gather those words back. You see, uh, that our words are like that toothpaste. Once they're gone, once they're out, we're not going to get them back in. So here's our big idea as we look at commandment number nine together today. It's this, that your mouth is under the authority of your heart. That, that comes out of the idea of Matthew uh, 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your heart is under the authority, excuse me, your mouth is under the authority of your heart. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we're in Exodus chapter 20. You can open your Bibles there. If you don't have one, you can look at the Version Bible app. Uh, I would encourage you, you can download that app and be able to, uh, to follow along there as well. We also have a, an event that we post in the Version Bible app. Um, if you're having trouble finding it, just search for Redemption Calvary and you can follow along there as well. But Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verse 16 today in commandment number nine. It reads like this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to give our attention to it. And we just pray right now that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide. Lord, that you would help us to know you. You would help us to draw near to you. You would help us to understand you. And that as we, we make sense of uh, these Ten Commandments uh, by, by diving deeper into them and really uh, um, extrapolating from them uh, principles that we can apply to our lives, God, we pray that it wouldn't just be these, these vague concepts or, or ideas, but that we would be getting to know you. And so, God, we pray today that you'd be glorified, that you'd be honored, and that uh, we'd be able to know you better and to, to dive deeper into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 is where we're at together today in commandment number nine. And we're going to look at it, breaking it down into three different parts today. Number one, the origin of lies. Number two, the operation of lies. And three, the obliteration of lies. You like that alliteration, all those O's? All right, so uh, in this, as we're looking at the Ten Commandments, we've been doing this for a number of weeks, like I said before. Uh, what we're doing is we are, you know, we said that the Ten Commandments sort of breaks down into two parts. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? And he said, love your, uh, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, and then he said, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus was doing was taking all the law and breaking it down into two 
components, loving God and loving others. And essentially that's how the 10 commandments break down. The first four commandments deal directly with our relationship with God and the, the, the next uh, six deal directly with our relationship with people. And as we're looking at our uh, relationship with people, the common connection uh, of these, uh, these commandments is that they were a violation against people. And essentially they're in this direct link of our relationship with others. But but it goes further than that. It doesn't just stop at your relationship with people. And I hope that that's something, if you've been tracking with us through the Ten Commandments that you've seen, that every time we come upon one of these in this second portion of the Ten Commandments, we address it in terms of this is some sort of sinful thing, this violation against people. But the thing that makes it even worse than that is that it's actually a violation against God himself. And the same is true with commandment Number nine, you see it goes further and deeper because people are unique in all creation as image bearers of God. We're different than animals, we're different than plants, we're different than the the stuff that's out in outer space, the things that are in the ocean, we're different than the birds, We're, we're different than anything else in all of creation because people are uniquely image bearers of God. And so to sin against people is to sin against God. In Acts chapter 9, we see that Jesus interrupts this guy, Saul, his life. He's also known as Paul. And Jesus interrupts his life and brings salvation to Saul and uh, changes the entire course of his life. And there's a a bit of an interaction in verse 4 where Saul falls to the ground. It says this, and he, this Saul, fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus speaking to, interacting with Saul, and and essentially Saul is on this road to Damascus, and his whole point, his whole purpose is he's going to go find Christians, he's going to imprison them, he's going to uh, persecute them, and even murder some of them. And as he's on the way, Jesus meets him, and this bright light shines and shows up, and it knocks Saul off of his horse, and he hears this voice, and it's the voice of Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you, Saul, persecuting not my people, not the Christians, not those, those people in that city. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus doesn't just say then. Jesus takes it personally. The, the persecution against his people, Jesus takes personally. And this is generally true of all people because we're all image bearers of God, but it's specifically and more specially true of those, uh, those of us who are in Christ, those who are God's people. And commandment nine, like I said, is no different. To lie is to violate not only the person you're lying to, but it's to violate the God of truth who cannot lie. It's a violation against him. So let's look at this first idea together, the origin of, of lies. Now look there at the verse. It says in uh, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness. That, that idea of bearing false witness, it's really uh, directly applies to legal proceedings. That, that's the, the most direct kind of way to apply this. It's speaking more in terms of like a court of law, such as giving testimony, but it's not limited to this singular application. Now in this day, in, in the time when the Bible was written, uh, when they're, the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness and they're, uh, they're you know, being led by the Lord, uh, eyewitness testimony was really all that they had for, for different things. They didn't have technology the way that we do. They didn't have video or audio that they could record. They didn't have any kind of DNA forensics that they could look at or fingerprints that they could try to, to hold on to or whatever. That All that they really had was eyewitness testimony as evidence. And, and so this was a really big thing culturally from them. And, and, and from this, from this idea is where we even get the concept, the idea of our sworn testimony. You know, that when people go and they're going to give a testimony, then they've got to say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This, this whole idea comes from this, this idea of, of bearing this false witness and commandment number nine. Now, like I said, this isn't just narrowly focused to some sort of court of law, but because in a very real sense, your life is on display, it's, it's on trial in the court of public opinion, that people are constantly looking at your life. People are constantly evaluating your life, and they're seeing if your life is one of those things that lines up with what you say. Does what you do line up with what you say, or does what you say line up with what you also say? 
Uh, do these things match together? People see you. They watch you. They see what you say, say. They see what you do. They see how you act. They see how you treat people. They see the way that you, you choose to do things and the choices that you make in life. And it's all bearing testimony to whether or not your life is true or maybe it's an elaborate lie. And, and they're seeing all of these things. You see, not only do we, do we see this idea there in verse 16 of you should not bear false witness, but notice the last part of the phrase. It says against, or the verse, the, the phrase is against your neighbor. Against your neighbor. And so, you know, there's this really narrow kind of wording associated with this idea. And from this, we get the idea of you shall not lie. But the way that it's stated is you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. And, and I think that this concept of your neighbor is one of those things that leaves sort of a loophole open. And, and it leaves an opportunity for, uh, for us to sort of try to define some terms. And, and that's what guilty people like to do, don't they? Whenever, whenever someone's guilty, they, they start saying, okay, let's, let's try to find some loopholes. Let's try to define some terms. Let's try to get out of this. And the question that they ask is, well, who's my neighbor? You know, if, I, if I've got to not bear false witness against my neighbor, then let's define neighbor. I mean, is it the people who happen to live next to me? Is it the people who live on the right and the left of me? Not necessarily those across the street. It's just those two families. I just can't bear false witness against them. And then, and then I'm good. Everybody else, you know, whatever. I can lie to them. I can say whatever I want and, and I'm good. I'm, I mean, does that work? Is that how this goes? Well, of course not. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I, I want to show you something here. See, this is not a, uh, a question that is uncommon or disconnected even from our day. And Jesus dealt with this question directly. And so I think that he helps us to grasp and understand what matters within all of this. You see, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, uh, Jesus is speaking to uh, a lawyer. It says, verse, verse 25, and behold... A certain lawyer stood up and tested, uh, tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see that there, the lawyer brings that exact question to bear. Essentially, in verse 25, we see this, that this lawyer is trying to outsmart Jesus. Do you see that concept there? It says that he's testing Jesus. So he brings this question. He brings this, this premise before Jesus, and he's trying to, to, to question him. He doesn't have a, a true heart, not a genuine heart in this. And he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus brilliantly just turns the whole question around back on him. It's amazing how Jesus answers a question with a question, trying to get this guy to think, trying to get him out of his religious stuff where he's stuck and get him to think about what really matters in it. And Jesus says, well, what do you, what do you read in the law? What do you get? And the guy, the, the lawyer says perfectly, beautifully, he, he says essentially exactly what Jesus said, that he sums up the law saying, love God and love people. That's really what I need to do. I, I need to love my neighbor, love God and love neighbor. And, and so the lawyer asks though, this loophole question that is so common, well, who, let's define my neighbor. And so Jesus masterfully uses an illustration. Let's read it in verses 30 through 36, where Jesus, he, he'll just teach us exactly what this looks like. Jesus says this, Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the uh, place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, uh, wounds, pouring on oil and wine and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him uh, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? I, I don't think that we really have to expound on that very much at all. Jesus teaches so 
simply, so easily, so beautifully. He just illustrates this so amazingly with this story and it cuts with clarity and precision that everyone is my potential neighbor. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who, who lives next to me necessarily. It's, it's to say everybody is potentially in this category. And that not only is Jesus saying that, but look at what he says in verse seven. And it, the, the guy says to Jesus, uh, the answer to Jesus's question, he, well, he says, of course, it's he who showed mercy on him. You know, when you look at this, you go, there's two guys who, because of their religious piety, they said, well, you, you're, you're kind of gross. You don't really fit into my category. So I'm just going to avoid you. And, and that's what they do. And Jesus says, of course, the, you know, the, the only right answer is the Samaritan guy uh, is the one who, who was the true neighbor. And then Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Here's what I think is amazing. Here's what I think is brilliant. Jesus not only gives us this as an example to say, hey, here's what you should act like. And really that is a, uh, uh, you know, just a condemnation against all of us because we all have a tendency to say, I'm too busy or I just don't really want to get involved or that's gross. I can't jump into that or whatever it happens to be. And, and, And we have a tendency to do that. And so Jesus says, no, if you're my people, you're going to think differently. And so he gives us this example, but also look at verse 37 real quick. Uh, excuse me, verse 36. Notice this, uh, that, that Jesus, it says, um, who do you think was the, the neighbor to the guy? In this, Jesus is also using this whole thing as an illustration, not only of this right person, but of himself. Because the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus did this for you. Jesus did this for me. Jesus is the one who rescued. He, he's the one who healed us. We're the one in the ditch, half dead with no hope of survival. And Jesus comes and rescues us. Jesus comes and brings healing to us. Jesus comes and pays the price for us. And then Jesus says, I'm coming back again to, to fully pay all that you need in order to, to bring you home and, and to take you where you need to go. That Jesus is coming back for me. He's the one who's done all of this for you and for me. It's through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What an amazing thing that he shows us here. You see, the idea of neighbor goes deeper than just who I happen uh, to live by, but it's, it goes to everyone who I'm potentially around at any time. You see, lies have been around since the dawn of humanity. And, and even though that we have a tendency to try to justify this, the truth is that it reaches into more of our lives than we realize. When we look all the way back to the very beginning, when Satan shows up in the the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three, what we see is that the first thing that he does is lie. The very first thing Satan does is lie. In in very real fashion, the first sin mentioned in the Bible is lying. And I actually just learned this last night. Someone was texting me. The very last sin mentioned in the Bible is lying. When you look at Revelation chapter 22, I think it's verse 15. The very last sin in the Bible is lying. What a crazy thing. The bookends of sin are found in this idea of lying. And here's what I think is important in this. Here's the thing I think we got to grasp in this. Every sin that you potentially commit is, finds its root in the idea of a lie. You're believing something that's wrong. You're either believing something wrong about God, that's a lie about God, or you're believing a lie about that sin, that it's going to give you something that you think you need or that you think it's going to provide for you. Everything that we do that is a violation of God and that's sinful, that costs Jesus his precious blood, comes down to the idea of believing a lie. That's what it all comes down to. Now, Satan, he lies in this, and, and throughout the Bible, not only does he lie in the very beginning, he's depicted as a liar all throughout scripture. In fact, in uh, John chapter eight, verse 44, Jesus is talking to some of the religious leaders and he says this to them. He, sometimes Jesus says stuff that's not nice. He says this, you are the children of your father, the devil. I mean, imagine if Jesus said that to you, that like Jesus, you should get a, what would Jesus do bracelet and kind of be a little more nice, shouldn't you? <laughs> like what is going on here? He says, You're a, you are children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He always hated the truth because there was no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Grasp that idea real quick. Think about that verse for a minute. Jesus is saying that Satan is the father 
of lies. That's what he calls Satan. That when you trace lying, you trace lies all the way back to their origin, you find Satan. That's what you find. It's, It's to say that when we lie, that we are speaking Satan's native language. That's what the idea in that verse of consistent with his character also carries the idea of speaking your your native language. Maybe some of you can speak multiple languages, you know, and if you can, then you know that it's much simpler and easier for you to speak your native tongue, your native language, your first language. You think in that language. It's easier for you to to be able to communicate in that language. And and that's the, the thing that's being stated here, that when Satan speaks, his natural uh, place, his, his most simple, easiest, and natural communication device is lying. And that when we lie, when we adopt lying, we're speaking in Satan's native tongue. We're, 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 we're speaking uh, and participating in a demonic practice. It's a, it's a bigger deal than I think we tend to look at it. Now, not only the origin of lies, but secondly, what we want to look at is the operation of of lies, because the issue of lying is is much more than just not nice. It's much more than just doing things that are that are uh, not the most uh, not the best option. It's it's a lot more than that. You see, the Bible describes lying in graphic terms. The graphic terms, uh, so far as as assaulting other people with weapons. Uh, th- look at what Proverbs 25, 18 says. It says this, telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an ax, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow. Think about that for a minute. The Bible is using really graphic imagery to say that lying is just like doing this, that lies are like declaring an unjust war on someone or attempting to murder them. And in fact, when lies come out, that's exactly what it is, is that we are trying to murder their character murder their, uh, their, who they're known to be at. You see, stolen things, the, the last commandment we went over, the one before this, stolen things, they can be replaced. But lies do irrevocable damage. They, they completely destroy things. Uh, one of the things I think about when I think about this is that when we were first starting redemption, we were in the process of planting the church. Uh, there was a, a friend of mine who was participating in helping the church get up and going. And, uh, you know, in the process of planting the church, someone who had tremendous credibility with him lied to him about me. Um, and in the process of trying to go through this and work out these lies and, and figure it all out, uh, he said to me as we were sitting down eating together one time, he said, I know that what's been said about you is a lie. I know it's not true. And yet it still damaged him so deeply and our relationship that he left the church and he's completely disconnected from me even to this day. It's, they do irrevocable damage. Lies are very dangerous. Lies are like weapons in our hands that we use to attack people. So we've got to be really, really careful with it. You see, the concept of lying is a lot more than, than asking your kid, hey, did you eat that cookie? And they're like, uh-uh, uh, what, what you talk, cookie? I've never seen a cookie in my whole life. And they've got crumbs on their face. It's like obvious, you know, you, you ate the cookie. There's chocolate smeared on your face still. There's crumbs maybe in my beard. Your child probably doesn't have a beard. But, uh, you know, things like that are, are going on. It's a lot more than that. So when we define the idea of a lie, here, here's the idea. Here's what we're talking about. A lie is a conscious, purposeful choice to withhold what is true, to state what is untrue, or to tell what is only partially true. Think think about that for just a minute. When we're talking about lies, we're talking about something that's more, that's got more to it than what we tend to think. More to it, uh, more involved than what we might be willing to admit. It's, It's saying what's not true, but it's also not saying what is true. That is also bound up with the idea of lies. You know, lies are, they're cunning. They're stealthy. They're secretive. They, they're, really, they're really weird the way that they find their way into our, our lives. I, I was thinking about it just this week, and it's funny how God likes to teach me things before I get to teach you things, and so I get to live a, a lot of this stuff before I bring it out. And just this week, we're sitting down to eat dinner, my, my kids and I, and uh, we're, you know, we're sitting uh, around, you know, the table, 
Actually, no, we were in the living room because the table was full of, of uh, uh, puzzles. You know, maybe your house looks crazy like that with all this going on, but our table, our kitchen table is filled with puzzles. And so we're sitting in the living room and uh, we were sort of disconnected as a family and, and uh, we were eating at different times, but sort of a similar time. And I'm sitting there and I'm eating. And one of my daughters said, hey, dad, did you pray? And my immediate response was yes. And then I thought for a minute and I was like, no, I didn't, I didn't pray. So I'm like convicted that I didn't pray. You know, that's one of the things that we typically do. We pray before we eat so that we can pray together. And then I told her yes. And I had, to, I had a choice in that moment. Am I gonna just let that go and I can just quietly pray to my, in my own head, Lord, you know, whatever, and, and then, you know, keep eating? Or maybe I confess this and I tell her, and I, I did. I said, you know what, that, that was wrong. I, I didn't pray, let's pray together. And so we, we ended up uh, praying together before that. But it's just this weird thing, the way it finds its way into those moments of life that you're unsuspecting of sometimes. They're, they're really sneaky, they're really cunning, and they take all sorts of shapes to find their way into the tiniest vulnerable positions and places and openings in your soul. So I, I wanted to share with you five uh, primary ways that we lie. Um, and, and I think this is going to be helpful because what I hope that you see through this is that you are way more guilty of this than you're willing to admit. That we are, we are actually pretty terrible when it comes to this. We are far more guilty than we're willing to admit. Now, these five things I stole from Mark Driscoll so we can thank him for them. Uh, and uh, he's a smart guy and I took it from him. So here's this list. Number one, uh, I rearranged them. He says them in a different order. So I rearranged them a little bit. There, I can take credit for that. All right, number one, deception. <laughs> the idea of deception. This is a way that we lie. Uh, to, a deception is to twist the truth into a weapon for harm. That's the idea of deception. That you take the truth and you twist it Instead of, instead of a weapon against lies, it becomes a weapon to do harm. It, usually, deception has some truth in it. That's how a good lie works. That's how good deception works. It has some truth or it's even mostly true. But really what the truth is, it's being misused. It's being mishandled. And the truth is being used to conceal what's really actually terrible. It's being used to conceal the, the harm that's being done. It, it's like, uh, you know, when, when uh, people are, you know, they're trying to survive or, or whatever in survival scenarios. If you ever watch, uh, you know, uh, different guys on survival shows or whatever, one of the things that they'll do is they'll usually set up some sort of snare. Uh, and, and the snare, essentially, it's like maybe this loop that they set up on a tree branch. And then, you know, it's set down where there's like a, a piece of, of food that maybe this animal would like. And as the animal comes along, they're focused on the food. And then they set off the snare and they're caught. And, and that's the whole concept is that, that there's some truth to it. And that draws me in. And then the snare catches me. That the truth is there to deceive, to cover over the, the reality of the harm that's being done. And that's what deception is about. Not only deception, but also gossip. Gossip is one of those things that I think is far more prevalent than we are willing to admit. What gossip is, is sharing damaging information with the intent of harm. It, it's, it's this, it's the idea of, of true information maybe with an untrue heart. Not all gossip is lies. Sometimes it's sharing things that, that you just, it's not your business to share. It's not your information to share. It's not for you to talk about that stuff. If they wanted me to know, they'd tell me. They don't need you to come tell me the thing that happened in, that's happening in their life. That, that it's, it's not for you to share those things, that you need to leave it up to those people to do so. Some people try to use this in order to get me to deal with things. They'll come and they'll tell me, hey, did you know this was happening with that person over there? And, and I've got to stop them and say, hey, you should go talk to them. Not tell me so that I'll go handle it. No, that's gossip. That's, that's not the way that, that things uh, get handled uh, is through that. It's not your job to share other people's business. And, and the way, here's the Christian way that this happens. Here's the way that, that, that it takes place. Hey, can I share a prayer request with you? I heard Sally was committing adultery on her husband. You know, whatever. And it's like, well, that's, okay, I'll pray for Sally, but I'm also gonna pray for you, you gossip. You know, like that's, it's, that is not the way that, that we're gonna do this. That's not the way that, that we, use, we don't use Christian terminology to cover over something that is terrible, that is absolutely damaging. Uh, gossip is, is a number, another way that we lie. Another, one, another way that we lie is three, slander. 
Slander is another way that we lie. See, what slander is, is it's malicious and often false information. You see, the previous ones, deception and gossip, they typically have true information involved in them. This one, slander, is different. It's usually false information with the intent to, to harm. What this looks like is that there are some people, and maybe this is partially who you are, maybe, maybe this is the thing that you do, that they're case builders. You know, they, they just wait and they, they watch and they set up scenarios and they, they don't really let people know that they're being tested. They just go, I'm gonna set up this scenario and I'm gonna kind of see how they act and I'm gonna gather information and I'm gonna wait to see how it all comes together. I'm going to look for them to mess up. I'm going to arrange the situation so that they do mess up and that they fall into this trap or whatever. I'm gonna leave out certain information as I'm saying things. and I, I'm gonna maybe tell the truth, but I'm just gonna leave out critical components of the truth and say it in such a way that you can jump to your own conclusions. This is, this is slander. This is dangerous. This is deceptive. This is harmful to people. It's a way that we lie. It's, it's not just to not tell the truth. It's to withhold the truth as well. Number four, flattery. Flattery is a massive way that we lie. Flattery is essentially this idea. It's to, to have insincere and excessive praise in order to manipulate. That you say things that are nice in order to manipulate somebody else into doing the thing that you want. It's not true. You don't really think those things or you, or you even, you do think that, but then you, you over-exaggerate it in order to make it sound better than it really is in order to get them to do the things that you, you want them to do. It's a manipulation tactic. It's saying stuff that they want to hear in order to get them uh, to do stuff for you, to use them. It's, it's not for their good. It's for your use of, of them. And what this also, this is not the idea of encouragement. Flattery isn't the same as encouragement. Encouragement is genuine. Encouragement is we need people who are just encouragers. Do you have those people in your life? They just, they, they just say things to you that are encouraging. It's, it's not that they're lying to you. It's not that they're over-exaggerating stuff to you. They're just encouraging. We need those kinds of people. You see, the difference is that when we're talking about people who are using flattering, then what they're doing is uh, they're, trying to, um, they're, they're trying to use a motive of using you, whereas people who are encouraging are trying to encourage, they're doing it for your good. They, they're showing love to you. And fifthly, and finally, and what I think is probably the worst one in all of this is false teaching. False teaching is a massive thing, a massive way that lies are spread. A massive uh, dangerous thing in lying. And, and here's the reality. The, the, the reason it's, it's the worst is because it's to tell lies about the true and living God who never lies, who cannot lie. You see, it's, here's the thing that happens within false teaching. False teaching is done either because people want control they're, they're trying to uh, manipulate and control the situation. They want to be God themselves or they think they need to help God out. God, you're a little bit mean. You're a little bit too harsh with that one. Did you really mean to say it that way? Lord, here, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna soften it a little bit. People will like you more. I'll be your PR guy and uh, we'll make sure that we can get this information out and this message out in a way that people, it's palatable. People will like it more if I can change it up a little bit. This is crazy. All, all this does is it, it produces false teachings. It produces heresies. Now, Heresies, just as a side note in this of false teachings, heresies have to do with primary things. That, that's what's a, a heresy. When, when there's a false teaching about the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is not God, that's heresy. When there's false teaching about the, the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for my sin, that's a, that's a false teaching, that's a heresy. When, when you start teaching things about how uh, the, the Trinity isn't, it isn't real, that there's, there's no, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't equally God, that's where you get into heresy. Heresy is not people saying and teaching the only right way to, to sing to God is a cappella. Once we add drums, now we're doing demon Satan worship or whatever. That's, it's foolish, but it's not heresy, okay? It's, it's false teaching and it's foolish, but it's not heresy. You see, the, motiva the motivation for lying is broad. Within all these five areas, these five primary areas of, of lying, 
the motivation for them is pretty broad. It, it can uh, be anything from avoiding negative consequences. Maybe that's why we slip into it. Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to own up to these terrible consequences. And if I just lie, maybe I'll get out of these consequences. Or maybe I want to manip- manipulate and control. I just, I have to be in control of this. I've got to shape the destiny of things. I've got to make sure I get the outcome that I want. And so that I'm going to, I'm going to use lies in order to do that or, or altering outcomes that, that if, if it goes along the way that it's going, then I'm not going to get the outcome that I want. So I'm just going to twist it. I'm just going to lie. I'm just going to insert this, this untruth about it or, or hold back some truth in order to alter the outcome or maybe, maybe to be accepted. We want people to accept us. We want to be part of the being brought in and, and being liked. And so there's where lies come from. All that, doesn't all that sound like politics? All you got to do is turn on the TV and see politicians talk. And there you go. You'll see all that happening. And, and that doesn't, that's not to say that politicians are bad and evil any more than any one of us are because they're just people. We just get to see it on display. We just get to see it on display before all of us. You see, lying, it's not just a bad thing. It's actually among the worst things. Turn in your Bibles real quick to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I want to show you here that lying's worse than we actually think it is. God takes lying and it's actually on his top seven things that he hates. Lying's there. Look there at Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to read uh, verses 16 through 19 together. It says this, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Here's the thing. Lying is something that is on God's top 10 of worst things that he hates. Now, hate is an extreme word. That, that's one of those words that we don't, we, we shouldn't just use for anything. And as, as a culture, we've sort of allowed that word to creep into a lot of things into our lives where we say, oh, I, I, like I would say, I hate tomatoes or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I guess that sort of works, but I think it's the wrong word for what we're really considering uh, with this word. You see, the idea of hate is it's an intense, intense dislike or a bitter disdain, even hostility. It, it carries the idea of enemies. And, and look what God does there in, in verse uh, 16. It says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. In, in case you missed it, in case you missed how much God is against this and at war with this, he says, not only do I hate it, but it's an abomination to me. And then he lists out seven different things. And lying is so egregious to God. It's, it's so distasteful to God. It's, he's at such war with it that it makes his list not once, but twice. Do you see it there in verse 17? A lying tongue. And then again in verse 19, a false witness who speaks lies. And then you might even be able to make a case for three times because one who sows discord or causes division, that's part of that. You gotta, you gotta bring lies into it in order to bring division uh, among people that way as well. So it makes God's list at least twice. Maybe even you can make an argument for three times. This is a big deal in God's mind. This isn't something small or insignificant. God looks at this as absolutely terrible. Now, when we look at this, we see not only the origin of lies and the operation of lies, but thirdly, the obliteration of lies. What do we do with this? Some of you at this point, you're thinking in terms of, well, what about and you have this scenario, this fill in the blank. What, what about this situation that I find myself in or, or this, this, this uh, uh, pretend scenario? What if I'm in this scenario and then I can, I can sort of uh, get out of this? And, and so some of you in that way, what you're doing is you're looking for an exception clause, right? You're, you're saying, you know, that I'm, I'm trying to find a way out of this. And that's typically uh, what people do, what liars do to try to find a way to ease their conscience. You know, I'm just, I'm gonna look for a way out of this. I'm going to look for a way to, well, it's, it's okay for me to lie in this scenario. And so, you know, really what I, what I want to do for us is I want to, I'll give you three exceptions that are things that maybe are commonly seen as lies that are not actually lying. But for the most part, when people ask this question, they're just looking for a way out 
for themselves. So here's, here's three exceptions for us. Number one is preservation of life or protecting people or guarding uh, uh, innocence or not acting in a treasonous or a betrayal of confidence kind of a way. Here's the idea that it's, a not a, it's not a violation of the ninth commandment for me to guard the innocence of my children and not share everything about, uh, about, any, uh, about any given subject with them. That there are some subjects that I need to tell them well, you'll find out when you're older. That's just the way that it is. There's some stuff that's, that they don't need to know, and so I'm guarding their innocence. Or, you know, if I'm, if I'm protecting uh, uh, people and preserving their life, you know, like say a soldier is uh, captured as a prisoner of war, and they say, where's the rest of, uh, of your unit? And, you know, they're bound by the, the ninth commandment. I can't lie. I got to tell them where the rest of my guys are. No, that's treason. No, you're, you're causing the rest of those guys to, be, uh, to have their lives in, uh, in more danger. And so that's not a violation of the, the ninth commandment. Here's what I'll say. For the most part, you're not gonna find yourself in those kinds of situations. You're, you're just not gonna be in those kinds of situations. Also, secondly, humor is not a violation of the ninth commandment. Telling a joke about a hypothetical something, it's not a violation of the, the ninth commandment. Some people, super hyper-religious people, they, they just really want to crack down on this and say, you can't say that stuff because we don't laugh and we don't like things and we don't do things that are, that are funny and they, just, they have no sense of humor and they're just jerks. And so it's, they, they just want to take this idea and say, you can't, you can't do that. By their logic, by the logic of saying that, you would also have to conclude that Jesus teaching parables was also lying because he was using these hypothetical scenarios in order to teach something. And that's just, of course, that is absolute nonsense. Also, thirdly, uh, politeness is not a violation of the ninth commandment. Here, I'll give you an idea. Maybe you're married. Some of you are married and uh, maybe your wife asks you the question, hey, do these jeans make my butt look big? (laughs) what's the right answer? You know, I mean, do you, do you not lie? And you say, you, you, you tell the, you tell the truth? Like, no, the jeans don't make your butt look big. Your, your big butt makes your big butt look big. Like, is that what you do? Like, if you do, we're going to have to have some counseling. I'm pretty sure. Uh, you're going to, you're going to have a big issue with that one. Do you, do you just like say nothing? You know, I take a vow of silence at this moment. Uh, what, what do you do with that? Sometimes it's just good to be polite with that. Sometimes, sometimes you just got to use some words that are going, going to have some politeness to it. Uh, and, and so it's interesting uh, for, for us to be able to, uh, to use wisdom in that. You see, the issue with this comes down to malicious intent. It has very little to do with what's being said because you can say the truth in a way that has malice involved in it. You can withhold the truth in a way that has malice associated with it as well. And also you can spread lies with uh, malice attached to it as well. It's not so much the what as it is uh, the how and the why. Now, parents, real quick, just to give you a, a couple of quick things for your kids in terms of lying. Uh, the, the way that we teach our kids is that uh, they're basically three categories. There's lies, there's secrets, and there's surprises. Lies are something that we never allow our children to do. That, that, that essentially if our children are caught in a lie, then whatever they've done, whatever sin they've committed, now they receive some sort of uh, discipline for that sin and for lying. Lying makes it worse. And so we've, we've got to ingrain that into our children. We accept no lies. We don't allow lying. Secondly, with secrets, it's in the same category as lies. We don't allow secrets. Secrets are what bad people use to manipulate your kids. That, that, that they, that's what pedophiles use to manipulate your kids into uh, having access to them. It's what uh, uh, kids who are going to other kids or, or adults or, or whatever are going to lead them into sinful practices. It's what they don't tell your parents. This will just be our secret. We don't allow our kids to have secrets. And, and here's the way we say it with our kids. We never have secrets. We only have surprises. Surprises are, are those things where we're able to, to have those in our family. It's like Christmas time rolls around and I take my girls out and we love to go shopping for Micah. And when we buy stuff for her, I tell the kids, don't tell your mom. 
Not because we're keeping a secret, but because this is a, it's a surprise. The difference between a secret and a surprise is this. A secret is a bad thing we don't want anybody to know. A surprise is a good thing that we want them to know at the right time. It's all about what we're doing together. Um, turn in your Bibles real quick, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. And uh, as we begin to wrap up, 1 John, it's at the very end of your Bible. 1 John chapter 1. I want to end uh, with a couple of thoughts here. Um, it says this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It says, This is the message which we heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie but do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the wor his word is not in us. Here's what John is telling us right here in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. That God is light. This whole concept is that God is light. And when we talk about light, what we're talking about is purity and holiness. And what John is saying is that God is so pure and so holy that there's not a deviation or variation or even a, a hint of a shadow within God. No darkness whatsoever. Lies and deception are outside of the light. They're stuff that's not in the light. They're a corruption of God's holiness. And what they do is they destroy and disrupt fellowship with God and with man. You see, confession and repentance bring the forgiveness and cleansing of the Lord upon this, this, uh, these lies. But rejecting this, rejecting confession and repentance, to, to say that I've, I have this lie, to say that I have sin, and to ask repentance is to say, God, would you forgive me and I'm going to turn away from it now? That's the idea of repentance. When we do that, then, we bring, uh, then, then the Lord brings to us cleansing and forgiveness. But rejecting this is, is the attempt to trade places with God. That's where he ends there in verse 10. If we say that we haven't sinned, then we, we make God the liar. We're trying to trade places with God. We're trying to say, no, I'm right, I'm true, and you're wrong. I'm, I'm holy, you're unholy. I'm the one who's pure, you're the one who's impure. You see, your entire hope of salvation is based, based upon the truthfulness of God. Outside of God's truthfulness, there is no hope of salvation. Here's how Titus 1-2 says it. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. The entirety of your salvation, the hope of heaven, hinges upon the fact that God cannot lie. If he could lie, then there's no, tr there's no true security that we have. But, but it's an utter impossibility for God to lie. And that makes him entirely trustworthy. Because he won't ever lie because he can't ever lie. You see, lies have a lot more to do with what's happening on the inside than, when, than what's happening on the outside. We began with this thought, and, and I just want to wrap it up like this, that your mouth is the authority over your heart. Luke 6.45 says it like this, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows uh, what you say flows from what is in your heart. So here's the question. Are you good or are you evil? That's a, that's a rough one to think about for a minute, isn't it? Because if I'm gonna be honest, if I'm gonna be honest with myself, if I'm gonna be honest before God, then there's a lot more evil flowing out of my mouth than I want to admit. You see, the answer isn't based on how you feel. It's not even based on what you want the answer to be. The reality of the answer is what is actually coming out of us. Out of us. Uh, we've got to admit not only that there's way more evil flowing out of me than I want, but I'm helpless to change myself. I'm at the mercy of something else. You see, the real issue is who is the authority over your heart? If your mouth is under the authority of your heart, who's the authority over your heart? And if it's you, it's the wrong person. It's the wrong person. Jesus has got to be the authority over your heart because he's the only one who has the power to transform and change us from the inside out so that what's in is different 
And then what's fl what flows out can be different. You see, the human condition is defaulted on sin. And we've got to choose to submit to and believe in Jesus. At the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, sin disrupted our rightful place under the authority of Jesus. Sin gave us a broken heart and a defiled heart bent on rebellion against the Lord. And all of us have been born in that state. Since Adam and Eve, our first parents, all of us have been born in that state of rebellion against the one true authority over our hearts. But at the cross, Jesus purchased back his rightful place for you and for me to be that in that position of authority. He's the one true and living God who sacrificed himself for all of us liars. The true God sacrifices himself for us liars and he purchases us and adopts us and transforms us. At the moment of the fall, sin entered the world. At the moment of the cross, Jesus paid for that sin. And at the moment of saving faith, when you recognize that this isn't just an arbitrary thing out there for them, but it's for you, it's for me. It's, it's that God is speaking right to me in my heart, in my condition. You see, Jesus at that moment, he dethrones the liars, the world, the liars of the world system who's against God, the, the flesh, that thing inside you that wants to rule your own self, the devil who wants to take control over you, the world of flesh and the devil are great enemies. Jesus dethrones those enemies, those liars, and enthrones himself upon our hearts. So I want to ask you, maybe you've never heard of Jesus that way. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus and understood that his death was for you. Today's the day. Now is the moment that you cry out to him. And it's as simple as recognizing your sin against God, recognizing your life as an offense to him and that Jesus died in your place on your behalf, that he did so so that he could, he could purchase you from sin and death and put within you a new heart and give you a new name that's not that's not liar, but now loved, beloved of God. And so if, if that's you if that's, what you, if that's what you're recognizing now, all that you need to do is simply ask him to forgive you. Say a simple prayer, something like, Lord, would you forgive me? I realize I've sinned and I want you to save me. Jesus, I know you died on my, uh, on my behalf, in my place, and that you rose from the dead and I believe it. Would you help me to be transformed by your power? And that's it. Something simple like that. And God will hear you, God will save you, and God will transform you. And for, for those of you who maybe have been walking with the Lord, a similar prayer is, is in order for you, a prayer of repentance. God, I've been wandering and I've been doing things my own way and I need you to, I need you to change me. I need you to bring me back. I need you to, to take that rightful place on the throne of my heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to study it together and we pray that we would draw near to you in this moment, that you, you would take your rightful place as the king over our heart, that you might be enthroned there and so that our mouths might be submitted to you and not to ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.